CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles. I'm Michael Schulter. Michael Thompson, Ph.D., is joining us right now. He is a child psychologist, a school consultant, flies more than 100,000 miles every year. He has visited more than 700 schools in his career. He says his job is like having a front row seat on Broadway for the hit show Child Development. Today we are going to talk to him about his new book, Homesick and Happy, How Time Away from Parents Can Help a Child Grow. Michael Thompson, welcome. Thank you, Michael. What is the goal of this book? Tell me what Homesick and Happy is about. It's all about the subtitle of the book, which is How Time Away from Parents Can Help a Child Grow. I believe that children need to be away from their parents to have certain kinds of growth experiences in life. That's the short story. Michael, you have a list of eight fundamental things that parents want to do for or give their children but cannot. I'm just going to skim through them quickly. We cannot make our children happy. We cannot give our children high self-esteem. We cannot make friends for our children or micromanage their friendships. We cannot successfully double as our child's agent, manager, and coach. And it goes on and on. A lot of we cannots. And any parent who cares is going to ask you, what can we do? So tell me what we can't do and why and what we can do. Michael, I, I talk to parents probably 200 nights a year. I've become a parent educator. And people say, how do I give my child self-esteem? Or all I care about is that my child would be happy. What should I do to make my child happy? And they're always a little demoralized when I say, you can't give your child self-esteem. Self-esteem is a byproduct of skills and of meeting developmentally appropriate challenges and mastering them. That's what gives a child self-esteem. But parents want to be able to say to a kindergartner, oh, honey, you're wonderful, you're just wonderful, you're the best kindergartner, and they want that to make a kindergartner feel like they're a completely whole human being. But all a kindergartner has to do is look at a second grader, and they know they're short and they can't do that much because a second grader can do all this amazing stuff. That frustration and dissatisfaction is part of childhood is very difficult for some parents to remember or accept. They want the perfectly happy child satisfied with every stage of their life. And I say, rubbish. So you can't give them happiness every moment. If you try, you'll have a child who manipulates you. You can't give them self-confidence. You can't pick their friends for them. And I'm going to go down my list, but I'm going to skip to the end and say, and you can't give a child independence. To me, this is obvious. It's by definition you can't give it because independence means being away from your parents. So you can never have independence if you have a parent looking over your shoulder. Your parent has to open the door and let you walk out and find independence, experience it, and become comfortable with it. That's camp for me. All right. So give us some stories from the front lines. And you told me a story about a kid with some cell phones that that you said – Uh, really led you in in some ways to write this book. Tell me about the kid with the cell phones. Right. Well, I I meet camp directors uh, 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 quite often, and a number of them had been saying that the campers, the the vast majority of camps don't allow cell phones um, because they... If kids are constantly calling their parents, they never get over homesickness. They keep sort of re-inflaming their homesickness. So they usually... Take the phones at the beginning of the summer. I'd had camp directors say to me, we're getting kids with two cell phones. 
one to turn in and one so that the child can continue to call the parent. But the camp director told me he had a child who arrived with three cell phones, one to turn in, one to use illegally until it was confiscated, and then the backup illegal phone. Now, the question is, why has this parent sent the child to camp? Honey, I want you to have an experience at camp of independence, but I want you to be calling me all the time. And that's a contradiction. You, you can't have both. If you're constantly talking to your child, they don't get the experience of ownership of their camp day. All right. So you begin your book, Michael Thompson, with a chapter called A New York City Boy Goes Back to Camp. How did I get here? You write, it is 9.15 at night on October 30th, the day before Halloween. Cold winds are blowing off Lake Champlain, and I am shivering in the dark woods as I pull on a bathing suit, preparing to jump into that bone-chilling water. I don't know if I want that image in my head. Tell me how you got there. (laughs) Well... For, for two and a half years, I've been accepting every kind of camp-like invitation. I've gone on overnight school trips. I've gone to 20 residential camps. But I was also involved in a kind of mini camp that met for a group of kids. The families had, had put them together. And I found myself in late October on the banks of Lake Champlain with some counselors who were giving the boys some challenges, ninja challenges. Um, And they had the boys out in the woods alone in the dark. And when the boys came back, they told me, we're going to challenge them to go swimming in Lake Champlain on October 30th. Plenty cold. Um, It was in the high 30s, and the water was about 53. And they said to me, the writer, the the author, the guy in his mid-60s, if you stay, we want you to participate. If you're not going to participate, you, we want you to go back to the inn. So these counselors kind of stuck it to me. And I, it was clear I didn't want to do it. And they challenged me. And, you know, are you too old? Are you too scared? You don't. And I had to accept the challenge if I wanted to be there as a writer. And over and over, I found that uh, camp pushed me into areas of discomfort, into mosquitoes, into sleeping in tents, things that I've generally avoided as, as I've moved into my 60s. But that's what it does for kids. And, and I, I was really glad to have those experiences ultimately because it made me remember how triumphant you feel when you conquer that stuff. And I tell you, I didn't like going into that water, but I felt like a million dollars when I came out, and so did all the kids. On this subject, you say many children do less well when their parents are watching or supervising them. And it also became evident to you that self-esteem did not and does not come from your parents trying to support your self-esteem. It comes from building skills. So explain that and then tell me, you know, there are a lot of parents who are really working hard to help their kids build skills. And yet you say maybe they're going overboard. Well, let's think about town sports. I think I use this example in Homesick and Happy. Uh, Mother said to me she always went to her children's games. And I said, well, that's nice for you. Uh, It's entertaining to watch your daughter play soccer. But the experience for her is playing the game, being with her friends, competing against the opponents, and winning or losing. And sometimes having your parents on the sideline is a bit of a burden. And the woman said, but we've always gone to our daughter's game. And I said, yes, yes, I'm sure that's great for you. 
but I'm not sure it adds value to your daughter's experience. And the woman got quite angry with me. So I appealed to somebody in the audience, a woman in her late 20s, who said she was an athlete. And she said, I always kind of preferred when my parents weren't at the games. Because then I could go home and tell them how it went. But I had the ownership of the experience. And one of the things that very loving, conscientious parents do is by always being there, they take ownership of the experience away from their child. And in the end, a child has to own the experience to grow from it, in my opinion. One word that I saw repeatedly in your book, and it really strikes me, and it's going to strike any involved parent, it's the word escape. You talk about the benefits to children of escaping from their parents, of escaping from judgment. So explain that to me. I say that camp is not school. Um, School is always about judgment, expectation, um, building a foundation for the future, and this is going on your resume, you know. I've got parents, nutty parents, who are thinking about college admissions when their child's in second grade or third grade. That kind of anxiety bears down on kids. I believe summer should be a break from it. Now, there are people who say there's a learning loss in summer, and there is in children from failing schools or families that can't afford to provide an enriched environment in the summer. But for middle and upper middle class families, there isn't that learning loss in kids. And what I think that kids can get from camp is a set of new relationships and a kind of a deep relaxation and peace. Uh, let's, let's take the example of nap time at camps. Many camps have a quiet hour or an hour and a half after lunch. And it's for the 20-year-old counselors to actually sleep because many of them have been up at night socializing. Um, they need it. They need a nap. But it's the only place in the world where I see kids without electronics, lying on their bunk, reading books, playing cards. Um, it slows kids down. And I believe children need time to be slowed down and to become timeless for a period. And that's camp. That's not summer school. Summer school is just more school, more skill building, more of this, more expectation, more grades, and that 12-month pressure, I think, can really burn kids out. I see them in my office. When you see them in your office, what do they tell you? Kids get anxious. I've worked in some wonderful, wonderful independent schools. But the constant pressure from year after year makes them incredibly anxious. Um, and they develop symptoms around anxiety and stress, and they can't sleep, and they worry all the time, and they never feel they're done. And I think, gosh, you're living the life of a middle-aged executive, and you're only in 10th grade, you know? But at camp, you're in peace. Look, I have a wonderful story to tell you, Michael. Um, A mom confessed this story to me. Her son was, in fact, a brilliant student, absolutely gifted. All of his teachers agreed. And by 14, by ninth grade in high school, you can tell which kids are likely to be your Ivy Leaguers, the ones going to Stanford or MIT. And this kid was one of those. But he had always spent his summers in Vermont, around a lake, in a kind of a family camp community. But his mom began to think, I'm going to get him into a great college. And she started to collect brochures of these internships that he could do that would impress his college. And he caught her kind of thumbing through these brochures. And he knew immediately what was happening. And he looked her in the eye and he said, Mom, Mom, I'm not going to be gifted in the summer. 
And she laughed at herself, and she got it, and she put the brochures away. I need some town time. Kids need it. So do adults. You know, one of the problems with the whole tiger mom philosophy is that it thinks of childhood as just preparation for a highly competitive adulthood. I'm somebody who believes childhood has its own value as a stage, and we shouldn't just use it as a, a prep time. Well, a lot of parents listening to this, though, are going to say, uh, yeah, we're, and we parents are anxious, and we're anxious for a good reason, because it does seem like today's world, in today's world, there are more dangers, that the consequences of making the wrong choice for our kids are much more serious than they might have been in days past. Is, is that not true? Um, you know, being alive is dangerous, and you cannot perfectly protect your children. So I know a ton of moms who always drive their children to school because they think their children are much more safe. Now, five children in the United States are killed a week, every week, in a car driven by their parents. Okay? Um, so that's far more children die in a car with their parents driving than children are snatched from the curb, which is what the parents are worried about. I mean, it's, there's a huge geometric factor in the difference there. But the parent is doing something that makes him or her feel safe and in control. But in order to have a child grow up, you are going to have to experience a loss of control. That's what your child's growing up means. I mean, to me, that seems perfectly obvious. I've got a 27-year-old and a 21-year-old, and they, they did, there were a lot of times where I did not feel in control. And those were often the experiences that my children valued as growth experiences. All right. And yet, if we're responsible parents, we can't totally relinquish control. So where can we have the most positive impact? Choose trustworthy people to send your child off with, you know, and then have some confidence, have some trust. But on balance, what, is it what, those... Yeah, I'm sorry. On balance, is it those other trustworthy adults who are going to have a bigger impact on your child's life and future? I can't imagine that. Michael, you didn't have relationships with a teacher or coach or some kind of mentor who at a certain point in your late childhood or early teenage years had was having more impact on you than your parents? You know, I need to think of that. I need to think about that. And in fact, that makes me think of the question that you asked in this book and that you asked many parents about the sweetest moment. Tell, tell us about that when you ask people about what the sweetest moment was in their lives from childhood. I stumbled into this question one time. I can't remember why. And I began asking audiences 10 years ago, what's the sweetest moment of your childhood? And I give them five seconds to remember. I say to the 200 people in the audience, for how many of you, when you were experiencing that sweet moment, were your parents there? About 20% of the hands go up. And it's just what parents would love. It was a family Seder. It was Christmas. It was Thanksgiving. You know, the kind of memories we're always trying to create for our children. And then I say to the 80%, what was it? Oh, I was out in a field with my friends, and we were in grass so tall, we got lost, and we didn't know where we were. And w w my friends started to panic, but then I led them out. Um, or there was a big rainstorm, and I was, we went down to a stream, and it was flooding. And with my friends, we built a dam, and we got completely soaking wet, and we were there for hours. 
It's always away from the parents, in wilderness, um, in a challenging situation. I had an Indian woman in New York say to me that the sweetest moment of her childhood was when her parents allowed her to fly from India to the United States, changing planes in Frankfurt on her own. This was in the days before airlines required child <coughs> children be accompanied. And she said that was the sweetest moment, the most grown-up moment. And I think if your listeners remember their own childhoods, that they'll remember it's those kind of little triumphs on my own that we often catalog as, yeah, that that's how I knew I was strong. That's how I knew I was growing up. That's how I knew, you know, I could do stuff. Well, and this whole thing, that's how I knew I could do stuff. So you have a section in your book called The Magic of Camp, and it begins, Camp is Hogwarts. So exp explain uh -huh. to me why that is important. The most popular children's book series in history is about a boarding school. Now, admittedly, a fairly exotic boarding school. It's a, they teach magic there. But the fact is um, that Harry Potter's parents are dead, and his aunt and uncle are useless or worse than useless, and he has to ditch them, and that's when the adventures begin. And all of children's literature knows that, that the, the adventures only begin when you're away from your parents. If you think of all of the Disney movies, Bambi loses her mother, uh, Nemo separated from Please his stop, father. stop. You're going, to make me, you're going to make me cry. You're going to make me cry with those stories. Don't stop it. No, but, but Disney gets it. Disney knows that the adventures begin and that every great children's story is driven by the child being away from parents, experiencing things on their own. And I'm back to my theme of ownership, Michael. But if you're doing everything for your kids or watching everything that your kid does, how can your child ever really experience ownership on his or her own? All right. So here's the question then. Is the question, how can we parents send our kids to Hogwarts without really sending them away? How to give the child the Hogwarts excitement um, without sending him to boarding school. Exactly. How do you do that? Right. Um, but that's what why that sentence is in the book. I say camp is the closest thing to Hogwarts that kids are likely to get. And they talk about camp that way, as a place of imagination and creativity. And we had this adventure and that adventure. I watch these 11-year-old girls at this camp I consult to in Canada, and many of them have never been in the wilderness. And they come back from their first canoeing trip, five-day canoeing trip, and they line up in front of the whole campfire, and the counselor says where they'd gone, and then the kids each get to ta talk about what they did. And it's always, we fell in the mud, we lost somebody's shoe, we were covered with mosquitoes, we were out in the lake and their thunderstorm came up, we had to race for shore because of lightning, and then it rained and rained and we couldn't get a fire started, we had to eat uh, a cold dinner. And these girls are standing there with this these brilliant smiles on their faces, yeah, talking about their discomfort, but they're talking about their personal triumph over discomfort and the fact that they were braver than they thought they were going to be. They didn't get immobilized. They didn't cry. They ate their cold dinner, went to bed, their sleeping bag was a little wet, and they come back with a story of triumph. Well, which gets at a key theme that you've written about, too, and others have written about, the importance of failure and overcoming failure in building character and building resilience. 
So how does that figure into it? How, how much are we, are we doing a huge disservice to our kids right now by not allowing them the opportunity to fail? Because it does, again, seem like the costs of failure are higher than ever when there's so much competition down the road. Well, that is true. And the, the costs of academic failure are, I think, in a global economy, are higher, which is one reason why failures at camp, where you have to try eight or ten times to do a wet exit from a kayak. Have you ever done that, Michael? Uh, that I did because I went to camp for actually eight weeks at a time. And, and by the way, you talk about how parents are not willing to often let go of their kids for eight weeks, even if they can afford it. It's, it's one week here, one week there. Is it important to have that sustained amount of time away from your parents, or, or can you get it in short doses and still have the great impact? I had a bias partly because I had pretty lengthy camp experiences, about one month and seven weeks and things like that. I had a bias towards longer. When I went and interviewed kids, I found out that the they get the essential nugget in a week or two. Longer makes for deeper friendships and a, a, a greater feeling of confidence and mastery. But um, going away for a week can be life-changing for many kids. Heck, I've known some kids for whom a three-night school trip is can be a life-changer. I was accompanying a group of kids from a, a, a poor town in Maine who were going to Camp Cave leadership uh, experience during the school year. And they were away for three nights, but there was one boy whose mother wouldn't let him be away. She lived close enough so she was going to drive and pick him up so he could sleep at home every night. And when she came to pick him up the first night, he said, Mom, I want to stay. I want to stay. And she didn't want him to stay, but he insisted. So the next morning, she brought him back with his clothes to stay the next two nights there. He went off happily, and she began to sob. And I sat down beside her, and she said, I never left home. I never slept away from home until I, I was 18 but I can see how much he wants to do this and how he, happy he is about the possibility. This was a cold cabin in November, and he wanted to be there with his friends because it made him feel grown up. And his mom, even though she, she hadn't had the experience, recognized the truth that this would be good for her son and that he wanted to embrace it. Let me ask you, how many camps did you visit to prepare for this book? Oh, about 20 I've talked to hundreds of campers and former campers. So, you know, ev every parent of means right now is thinking, I got to call Michael Thompson. Give me his cell phone because he's going to know what the best camps are for my kids. So what are the general, what should we be looking for? Give us a set of lenses so that if we can send our kids to camp, even if it's just for a week, what is it? Because not all camps are good. What is it that we should be looking for? I think you learn about good camps by word of mouth. You talk to other parents. First of all, your child has a friend who's gone to a camp, and the friend's excited about it. So your 8-year-old comes home and says, Mom, Dad, I want to go to camp. I heard about this great camp from my friend. So you call the parents. What, how did that work for your son? How did that work for your daughter? And you get the word of mouth about a camp, and it fits your child's interests. My daughter Joanna went to a horseback riding camp in Vermont, because her friend Aaron Clare uh, had gone there, and they were both interested in horses. And we talked to Aaron Clare's parents, and they said, it's great camp. So w we went with that. You, you, you go to friends you trust, and then you find a camp director you can trust. 
if you're at all nervous about it, you sit down with the camp director because this is the person who's chosen all the 19- and 20-year-olds who are going to be looking after your child for a summer. That person has to be a judge of character and has to know kids. Okay, so so l- let me go to those 19- and 20-year-olds that are going to be critical for your kids in that week or two or four weeks away at camp. Why is it that a 19- or 20-year-old can teach my 11-year-old more about life and more about himself or herself than I can? (laughs) Michael, children love to learn, but they don't often like to be taught. And they get an enormous amount of systematic instruction uh, in life. And the great psychologist Eric Erickson said all societies have systematic instruction. But it's not sufficient. Children also need to learn from gifted, intuitive leaders. And he said, older children. And the key, and I think one of the most powerful things about camp, is that these are older kids, these young adults. And an 11-year-old looks up and can hear a 19-year-old because she looks up at that 19-year-old young woman and she thinks, that's a demigoddess. I want to be like that. That's the road to my adulthood. I actually think if you want your child to be excited about college, rather than drumming into them every day how important college is, send them to camp and have them be in a cabin with a pretty exciting, creative, beautiful college student. That'll make your kids want to go to college because they respect and admire and, yes, love their counselors. When it works well, it can just be an amazing experience for a child. Where else in American society can a 12-year-old spend a month being having the real loving attention of a 20-year-old? So it does come back to that escape from your parents. Look, when you, you and I try and teach our kids things, they think, oh, dad is teaching systematic instruction again. When a 20-year-old counselor is showing them how to ride a horse or, you know, wave boarding or any of the things that camps do. They think, wow, this is cool, and this is a cool person doing it, and I'm going to be able to do it. But, but you and I are kind of stuck with doing systematic instruction, aren't we? Aren't most parents? Well, well, I don't know. Here's the question, are we? Because can we learn something from what you know about camps and what works with camps? Can we learn some of that as parents? and in some way transpose it to our home experience with our children. Oh, we're too serious, Michael. <laughs> we, parenting makes you very, very serious. And it makes you a little bit judgmental, but you're constantly assessing. And you're, the way you're wired into your children is both wonderful for them and a little bit burdensome. That's parenting to me. Wonderful and a bit burdensome. So I am learning something from you. If we can just change that ratio a little bit, make it a little more wonderful and a little <laughs> less burdensome, am I? <laughs> I can't help myself, can Michael, I? Michael, I happen to the the listeners don't know, but I happen to know you're on vacation with your children. I see you're trying to become less of a burden to them, and vacations are good that way, actually, because most of us lighten up with our kids. But it's still not it still doesn't make us a twenty year old camp counselor. Okay, I'm. I'm setting out to prove you wrong, Michael Thompson. I'm, I'm heading out. Listen, is there a? I, I have it. Is can you? We can start this together. This is a new business. We are going to do a parent counselor training camp. You're going to help train us parents to become more counselor-like. Do you think it can be done? 
You know, I know a camp in Western Massachusetts, actually two boys and girls YMCA camps, and they have a a mother-daughter weekend and a father-son weekend. Now, as families become different and they're uh, gay parents and they're having to change the definitions of the weekends a little bit. But um, I have had kids tell me that watching their dad come to their camp and be in games run by 21-year-old counselors allowed them to see their fathers in a way they never had. I had a, a man who runs an international school in Germany say the single best memory he had with his dad was when his dad came to his camp, it was on the boys' territory, and accepted instruction. Set, the father set down his power and allowed himself to be controlled by young counselors. And the boy saw his father in a new way and related to him in a new way. And as a man in his late 40s who described this to me, started to cry. The most touching scene. So sometimes um, going to a camp, a family camp, as a parent may shake up your child's vision of you. I I believe it's often wonderful for children to see their parents to be klutzy at something, to be learning something. Most of us try and teach our children what we know how to do very well. But camp throws everybody into a situation where you don't know how to do it well. That's such a wonderful insight, though, because often we parents think we only want our children to see us excel because maybe it'll make them feel more secure. But that's not the case. It often makes them feel small and incompetent that we are so good at what we do. We parents, as our, child, as our children reach new development stages, we often think, is it too late to give our children X or Y or Z? Address the parents who have that concern that it's, it's too late for anything. It's never too late to try and recapture some of the spirit and some of the whimsy that you think you might have not provided for your child. If you've got an older child, take a cooking course together. Just both of you cutting an onion side by side, um, both of you cooking up a dish. I mean, there are ways to create this kind of spirit in yourself, and it's by becoming a learner in something that's not very high stakes that could be fun and delicious and uh, to do it with your children. Children love to see parents as learners. I mean, they love to experience themselves as learners but they also love to see their parents as learners. That, that's an important statement you made. Ch- children love to see their parents as learners. How do you know that? How do you know that's so important to children? I, I, there's a piece of research by a husband and wife team out of the University of Illinois, and they studied teenagers, and they found that for teenage boys, the happiest moments they have with their father is when they're teaching their father something. The irony is, of course, the happiest moment for the fathers is when they're teaching their sons something. And that's, that's a paradox because as, as fathers, we're always wanting to teach and boost and instruct. And for kids, they want us to be a learner and see us as a learner because they can identify. And then we're accessible. We're reachable. One of the reasons kids take instruction from a 19-year-old is that they see that person as a very recent learner just like them. They see the path to 19 more easily than the path to 45. All right. I am going to get off this interview now and be the most determined (laughs) whimsy maker you've ever seen. Good luck with that. Have fun. 
Have fun. Well, Michael Thompson, school psychologist, consultant, and author of the book Homesick and Happy, How Time Away from Parents Can Help a Child Grow. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. You're very welcome. 